We're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and we're going to read from Exodus chapter 1. If you're using one of our Blue Pew Bibles, you'll find the reading on page 45. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, this is a new series for a new season. Uh, We're going to be thinking about this great second book of the Bible, this epic book that tells us so much about who God is, but also tells us some incredible stories about Moses. So Exodus chapter 1, you'll find it on page 45 of the Pew Bibles, and we're reading the whole chapter together. And as we read, we remember that this is God's word to us. Exodus 1 verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 1. You'll find that passage on page 45 of the Blue Pew Bibles. And as you're looking that passage up, let's pray for a moment together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for... Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And we pray that as we now turn to your word, that we would be very conscious of that sacrifice and of what it means for us, of the victory that was achieved at the cross. We pray that 
you would help us to focus as we look at your word, give us an attention to it, and we pray that you would come by your spirit to challenge us and convict us and to make us more like your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Winning. We all like to win, whether it's football or Monopoly or rugby or Scrabble or Uno. We all like to win. No one likes to lose. Uh, a while ago, I told you about a moment of sporting glory for me. It was about a year ago. This morning, I need to tell you about a moment of sporting shame. Uh, as you know, I'm supposed to be doing a half marathon at the end of September. Do, I've been doing some running over the summer to prepare for it. And in the middle of August, I signed up to run the 10K in Brasheen. I hadn't taken part in it before, but about a week before it, I'd completed a 10K run. So I went along to the 10K in Brasheen feeling confident, you know, confident about my ability to finish the race. There were quite a lot of people taking part in the event, more than I expected. Uh, the people taking part in the 10K uh, started first, so I lined up with the other runners. There was a blast of the starting horn, and off I went. Now, one of the secrets of running is that you pace yourself. You run at a pace that is manageable for the whole of the run. I did not run at a pace like that. I tried to, tried to keep up with the really fast people. The run was also on the first day of that really warm week in August, so it was really, really hot. You can maybe guess where this is going, but at nearly 7K, I was done. I was beaten, finished, exhausted, completely out of puff. So I stopped and I dropped out. I hadn't paced myself and the heat was too much for me. The, 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 the run started at Houston's Mill and went out the Raceview Road and then onto the Ballygarvey Road and on from there. I was nearly at the end of the Ballygarvey Road when I stopped. But when I got to the end of that road, having stopped, I kind of wished that I hadn't stopped. Because at the junction, at the bridge, there was a huge crowd. Spectators cheering the runners on and other runners were now going past me. And I was just trudging back to the car, trying to keep my head down, trying to make sure that nobody spotted the fact that I hadn't finished. But some people did. And some people recognized me. And some people asked me, well, how did you get on, Stephen? And rather sheepishly, I said, well, I didn't finish. And I gave my excuses. My failure wouldn't have been as disappointing or frustrating had it not been for two things. The fact that I paid 20 pounds to take part in the run and the fact that all competitors who finished got a medal. I paid 20 pound, didn't finish, but because I didn't finish, I didn't even get a medal. And I think that was what got at me the most. Winning, we all like to win, whether it's football, Monopoly, rugby, Scrabble, hockey, Uno, or running. We all like to win, or at least finish. No one likes to lose. We all like to be in the winning team. The, the, the message of Exodus 1 is that you, if you're trusting in the Lord, if you're following Jesus, then you're on the side of the God who wins. As we start this new series on the second book of the Bible, what we find is that God is the God who wins. We're going to see God winning in three different ways in just a moment. But before we break Exodus 1 down, we need to think a little bit more about the book as a whole. Exodus is one of the most significant books in the entire Bible. It has been called the gospel in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in lots of Psalms and throughout the New Testament. The life and ministry of Jesus in some ways parallels the story of Exodus 
We're going to see that throughout this series. It's a book that was written by Moses under the influence of the Spirit of God, of course, and it has been composed and written with great flair and artistry. Exodus is an epic adventure story. We all like epic films. This is an epic book. It has a cruel villain, Pharaoh. It has an unlikely hero, Moses. It has overwhelming disasters, the plagues, a spectacular deliverance, the parting of the Red Sea, a long journey through the wilderness, a mountaintop experience, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and a grand finale, God coming down and filling the tabernacle with his glory. Just like Genesis, the movement of Exodus is important. You might remember from our series in Genesis that we said that Genesis starts with creation and then ends with a coffin. God creates the world at the start. Joseph is buried at the end. That's the movement of the book. Here's the movement of Exodus. It starts with a slave people building cities for Pharaoh, and it ends with the same people, liberated and free, building a tent dwelling for their God. So it starts with slavery, and it ends with freedom. Exodus is an epic story then. In this book, there are unexpected setbacks, unpredictable delays, magic tricks from the forces of evil, miracles, feasts, festivals, music and dancing, and many close encounters with the living God. And that's actually the thing we need to remember most of all. Exodus is a book about God. We're, we're going to encounter God as we study this book together. There are some great stories in it, particularly involving Moses. But first and foremost, Exodus is going to tell us more about God, how he is holy, how he works, how he saves, and how he wins. We're going to see him winning today in Exodus 1. Exodus 1 gives us a big picture overview of what's happening with God's people and God's purposes in the world. It tells us that God wins on three levels. God wins universally, God wins nationally, and God wins locally. We're going to take each of those points in turn this morning as we look at this chapter together. First of all, let's see how God wins internationally. Look at the opening verses of Exodus 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. The 12 tribes of Israel are listed in the opening verses of the book. These people have a history and a destiny. Exodus begins in a way that epic stories normally begin, in the middle of things with the adventure already underway. In the original Hebrew text, Exodus begins with the word and. Now, that's not the case in any of our English translations, but because it begins with and in the original, we can say this. Exodus is the sequel to Genesis. It's the next series in the continuing adventure of God's people. Before coming out of Egypt, the sons of Israel had to go there in the first place. And it's worth remembering why they went. Briefly, here's how the story goes. Joseph was the first member of the family to, to enter Egypt. He was the favorite son, the apple of his father's eye. And that made him the envy of all of his brothers. In a, in a fit of, of jealous rage, Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery, and gave his bloodstained, bloodstained robe back to his father. Yet in the providence and, and plan of God, Joseph eventually became the prince of Egypt. His family came to Egypt during a time of famine, 
And Joseph gave them bread and, and was reconciled to them. And eventually the family settled in Egypt. But the irony is that the families of the men who sold their brother into slavery ended up in slavery themselves. The, 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 the 12 men listed in verses 1 to 5 weren't anything special either. In fact, the more we know about this family, the more amazed we are that God would have anything to do with them at all. Genesis tells us that their less than desirable qualities include lying, treachery, theft, very questionable sexual ethics, and violence. The sons of Israel were sinners, ordinary mortals, ordinary human beings, and we know that from their obituary in Exodus 1 verse 6. It says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But they had one thing going for them, and that was their God. What was important about these people was that they were God's people. And what a God they had, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had God on their side with all of his promises. One of the great promises that God had made to his people was that they would become a great nation. God made that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 2. And as well as that, God promised Abraham a land. The promise of a nation, great nation is fulfilled in the opening verses of Exodus. The promise of a land is still to come, which is why they need to get out of, Exodus, out of Egypt. In terms of Israel becoming a great nation, just look at how big they are. Verse 7 tells us, it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. One of the really interesting features of Exodus is that significant words often come in groups of seven. In verse seven, there are seven different words to describe how great a nation Israel had become. Fruitful, increased, greatly multiplied, grew, exceedingly filled. We're supposed to get the point. We're supposed to see the big picture. God wins. And he wins internationally. His purposes can't be stopped. He has made a promise and he will keep it and fulfill it. No matter what happens, no matter what his people do, no matter who opposes him, God's purposes will prevail. Right at the beginning of Exodus, we're being shown who God is. He is powerful and sovereign. He is faithful and true. And the question is, do we know him? No one likes to lose. We all like to be in the winning team. Are we on God's team? Are we on his side? God wins internationally. In Exodus 1, his purposes are being fulfilled as, as his people multiply and grow. But, but as well as that, God wins nationally, internationally and then nationally. The next part of the chapter begins with ominous words. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph ruled as the prince of Egypt, and that meant God's people had access to certain privileges. But that all changed with the simple passing of time. A new pharaoh rises to power, and he doesn't care about history. He doesn't care about what has happened in the past. He is the main man now. And as the main man, he looks at God's people and says that they are a problem. In verses 10 and 11, Pharaoh decides to deal shrewdly with the Israelites, just in case they join his enemies and might escape the land. This is the first skirmish in what will be a long-running battle between God and Pharaoh. The first shots are fired in one of the Bible's great battles in verses 10 and 11. 
Pharaoh thinks that he will be able to deal with God's people politically. We see that in verse 11. He has thought about it. He's got people to write papers about it. He's produced legislation. His, his advisors are on board. He's going to stop the growth of the Israelites. He's going to make them work and work and work. He's going to grind their resolve into the sands of Egypt. But Pharaoh doesn't know who he's up against. He's taking on the God who wins internationally and nationally. It looks like Pharaoh is winning in verses 8 to 14, but he's not. In verse 10, he plans to deal shrewdly with the Israelites, lest they multiply. But look at what we're told in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Pharaoh might plan shrewdly, but God wins nationally. Despite God winning, though, Pharaoh still makes life difficult for the Israelites. Another example of that interesting word feature comes in verses 13 and 14. Seven words are used to describe Israel's slavery. Each word is like another crack of the slave driver's whip. So look at verses 13 and 14, and I'll just read out the seven words. Ruthlessly, crack. Work, crack. Bitter, crack. Hard service, all kinds of work. Work, ruthlessly. Crack, 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 crack. This chapter introduces us to the God who wins, but it also introduces us to the man who rebels. Pharaoh is a picture of someone who rebels against God. In a wider sense, Pharaoh represents Satan's opposition to God's plans and promises for his people. But God wins nationally despite Pharaoh's opposition. That said, though, we're left with a question. Where, where was God in all of his people's sufferings. Where was God as his people suffered? He, he, here we have an insight into the mysterious wis wisdom of God when it comes to suffering. But, but back in Genesis 15, 13, God had told Abraham this. He had said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God told Abraham about the Egyptian persecution before it happened. He knew all about it before it came to pass. He allowed his people to suffer in order that they might grow. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And he allowed his people to suffer so that they might look to him. And that teaches us something important about suffering that comes our way. Suffering helps us to look to our Savior. If God had not allowed the Israelites to suffer in Egypt, they wouldn't have turned to him. They would have just become more comfortable in the culture they were in. In the same way, if we never had any trouble in this life, we would never have any reason to long for heaven. Suffering helps us to look to our Savior. So whatever you're facing now, whatever hardship you're going through, whatever difficulty has come your way, you should know that God knows all about it and that he wants you to lean on him, to turn to him, and to realize that you can't face whatever you're facing without him. And you should also know that suffering produces growth. Not growth in the way that the Israelites experienced growth, but spiritual growth. In Romans 5, 3 and 4, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. 
C.S. Lewis has said this about suffering. He has written that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He shouts in our pain. That's the mysterious wisdom of God. The sufferings, the hard things we experience in this life come about so that we might turn to him, so that we might turn to the God who ultimately wins. So far, we've seen that God wins internationally and that he wins nationally. The third thing we see in this chapter is that God wins locally. Verses 15 to 22 tell us about what Pharaoh does next. Having not won politically, he turns to violence. Before things get better for God's people, things get a lot, lot worse. Pharaoh sees that the ruthless crack of the whip isn't working and isn't bringing the Israelites under control. So he comes up with a new strategy. He goes from slavery to slaughter. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is, if it, if it is a daughter, she shall live. The camera zooms in on two midwives. They're given an introduction by Pharaoh, uh, an instruction by Pharaoh, which is that they're to kill any boys who are born. Now, there are lots of things that we need to tidy up about these verses. The first thing is, were there only two Hebrew midwives in Egypt? You read the text and you kind of think, are there only two? And if so, how could two Hebrew midwives look after hundreds of thousands of would-be mothers and families? Well, of course, there aren't just two midwives in Egypt at this point. There were th these two midwives that are, that are named were probably chief midwives, head nurses, and were in charge of the other midwives. The next thing is, why did Pharaoh tell them to kill the baby boys? If he was so concerned about population control, surely it would have made sense to kill the baby girls. Pharaoh's main concern, though, was a military one. He didn't want the Israelites to join the armies of his enemies. He wants the Israelites to be stopped from raising young warriors. When Pharaoh issued this death warrant, he became an enemy of life. But he was met with some pro-life resistance. Shipra and Pua stand up to Pharaoh. They're two of the great women of the Bible. Shipra means something like beautiful one. And Pua means splendid one. And both of them live up to their names. Verse 17 tells us that they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Shipra and Pua knew that, the, knew that God is the Lord of life. And when faced with the choice of obeying God or obeying Pharaoh, they understand that obeying God is always the safest thing. What's really interesting is that the two midwives are named. We're given their names, Shipra, Pua, why is that so notable? Well, notice that we're not given Pharaoh's name. Pharaoh is a title. It's not a name. In Exodus, we're never given Pharaoh's first name. But Shipra and Pua are named. And in the grand scheme of things, in, in terms of the politics of Egypt, they are nobodies. But that's exactly who God uses. Nobodies. These nobody midwives trust in God and by their actions, God wins locally. Here's a question for you. Would you rather be a somebody or would you rather be a nobody? 
Pharaoh, he's a somebody. He's king of Egypt. He's powerful. He's rich. He's influential. But he's absolutely nowhere spiritually. Shipra and Pua, well, they're nobodies. Weak, insignificant, working for the man. But they fear God. They're on the side of the God who wins. Whose side are you on? Would you rather be a somebody or would you rather be a nobody? There's one more thing to tidy up about their story. Do they lie to Pharaoh when he calls them to account in verses 18 and 19? Pharaoh wants to know why they've ignored his death warrant. And Shipra and Pua say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Is this a lie? We can't be sure about what they say about Hebrew women giving birth quickly. It's just too long ago for us to be sure. But Proverbs 12 verse 22 is helpful for us. It says that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. God is holy and can't, cannot tolerate sin and lies. But listen to the rest of Proverbs 12:22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. What Shipra and Pua do here can't neatly be tidied up. They're probably a bit economical with the truth. You could say that they commit a lesser evil to thwart a greater one. You can talk about it over dinner and see what you think. But it reminds us that this world is messy and that life in this world is messy and that sometimes things are gray rather than black and white. The most important thing to say about the midwives' act of creative disobedience to Pharaoh is that what they did pleased God. In a story, one of the best ways to tell whether or not someone has done the right thing is to see what happens to them. Look at what happens to Shipra and Pua in verses 20 and 21. It says, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Those who act faithfully are the Lord's delight. Would you rather be a somebody or would you rather be a nobody? Pharaoh is outsmarted again by two resourceful midwives. God wins internationally. His purposes are being fulfilled. His people are growing. God wins nationally. He is with his people in their suffering. And God wins locally. He is using nobodies to defeat the forces of evil. Whose side are you on? That, that, that's the start of the epic story of Exodus then. Exodus 1 gives us a big picture overview of what's happening with God's people and God's purposes in the world. It tells us that God wins. As we think about God winning in Exodus 1, we can't help but move forward to the victory of God through Jesus. Earlier we said that Pharaoh represents Satan's opposition to God's plans and promises for his people. How is that? And in what way does, does Satan do that? Well, Pharaoh had two strategies for preventing God's people from growing. Slavery and death. And those are the same weapons that Satan uses when he tries to destroy human beings. Sin leads to slavery Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And once we're slaves, slaves to sin, sin leads to death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Just like the Israelites, 
We need a savior to deliver us from slavery and to rescue us from death by destroying our enemy. And just as God provided a savior for Israel in Moses, so he has provided a savior for us in Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus defeated Satan in the final skirmish, in the ultimate battle on the cross. Jesus has won the final victory, and when we trust in him, when we follow him, we can enjoy the spoils of that victory. Winning. We all like to win, whether it's football, or Monopoly, or rugby, or Scrabble, or hockey, or Uno, or running. We all like to win, or finish at least. No one likes to lose. We all like to be in the winning team. The message of Exodus 1 is that if you're trusting in the Lord, if you're following Jesus, then you're on the side of the God who wins. On the flip side of that, though, if you're not following Jesus, then you're on the losing side, the wrong side, the side that doesn't know God and won't experience his presence in eternity. Whose side are you on this morning? Would you rather be a somebody or would you rather be a nobody? Would you rather be powerful, influential, rich, but nowhere spiritually? Or would you rather be viewed as weak and insignificant, but rest in the assurance that you are on the winning side? The somebody's now will be nobody's in eternity. And the nobody's now will be somebody's in eternity. So whose side are you on this morning? Would you rather be a somebody or would you rather be a nobody? As we start a new series, as we start a new church season, are you on the side of the God who wins? The God who wins internationally, nationally, and locally. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beginning of the book of Exodus. We thank you that it tells us that you are the God who wins internationally, nationally, and locally. And we thank you that you have ultimately won through the death of your son on the cross. And we thank you that when we trust in Jesus, we become somebodies. Having been nobodies, spiritually speaking, we become somebodies in your presence. Father, we pray that we would follow Jesus this season. We pray that we would be faithful, that we would pour out our hearts in service. And we also pray that you would speak to those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. Help them to realize that if they're not trusting in him, then they're on the losing side. May your word speak to all of our hearts this morning, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.